Konnichiwa. Welcome back to the Okie Okie Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. And this is the show where we talk about Japanese movies from an Oklahoma perspective uh, once a month. And this month we are talking about the Netflix original, The Forest of Love. Yes, directed and written by Shion Soho. Sono? Pardon me? Sion Sono. Hi. Yes. I was going to try to find the uh, Japanese title because I don't think I've said it yet. For the movie? Yeah. It's uh, Aenaki More de Sakiba. Ah. Hi. Aenaki More de Sakebe. The Forest of Love. 2019. Brand spanking new. Ish. Ish. Two years now. Very recent. Oh my gosh, yes. It's 2021. Welcome to the new year. Where do we begin? Uh, I would think we let's just start at the top of the movie. Do you want to tell us a brief synopsis of this movie? Yes. I'm going to need names because there's kind of a lot of characters who come in and out. And I definitely want to make sure I get this on the top. (laughs) So... I'd say one of our main characters is Joe Murata, who is like this con artist, um, handsome man who's, we find out, is uh, seducing women left and right. He's also like a pop singer. Yeah, I would say the film kind of follows three, three groups that kind of merge into one. Uh, one being just Joe uh, Marata, the other being um, Shin and Jay, and um, their third friend, whose name I don't have with me, but um, not as important as Shin and Jay. Yeah. Uh, and they are a group of filmmakers. Um, yeah, like a ragtag independent. Yes, yeah. that has recently joined together, and they want to win the first prize at an international film festival. Um and they're kind of falling in love with the film industry and creating film. And then lastly, um, there is a, well, there was a group of schoolgirls um, that now only consists of uh, Teiko and Mitsuki. Mi- pardon me, uh, Mitsuko. Uh, those are the only two left uh, due to a series of tragic events that we will get into. But mm-hmm. these, this, this, these three pockets of people their stories kind of merge together and in, into what is the forest of love. So that's the briefest overview. We're going to get into the plot a little bit. So if you want to watch it real quick and come back, this is a good time. Um, otherwise, uh, let's go into a little bit of a plot synopsis here. So, yeah, Sheen and Jay and their friend, um, go to Taiko's house yes to try to get Sheen laid right like he's new to town and yes and it's important to them uh he's new to town and he's kind of kind of homeless more or less he's Mm. uh playing guitar on the streets and um they uh surmise that Shin is a virgin and that needs to be corrected so they take him to uh Taiko's house um 
and she is uh, somebody that they feel will uh, rectify that situation for Shin. Um, yeah, she, so she's a self-proclaimed whore. Not a whore, but, like, she sleeps around, and that's part of her crafted personality of herself. But she says, no, I'm going to take you to my high school friend, Mitsuko. And she does that, um, but Mitsuko refuses. Yes. Um, And she is uh, very much stuck in a high school purity stage of um, still having a ton of stuffed animals in her room and uh, living with her parents and uh, very much the opposite of uh, Teiko. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an altercation between Teiko and uh, Mitsuko. Um, where we're kind of not certain as to what their relationship is, if it's a good relationship or a bad relationship. Um, I think it's going to be kind of best to talk a little bit, not just from start to finish of this, because uh-huh. otherwise it'll be a disaster, I think. So I think yeah. just speaking. So we, we find out that in their relationship, um, they had... Uh, Tycho was directing a high school play in which they were doing Romeo and Juliet, and Mitsuko was Juliet mm-hmm. in the play. And they both kind of had crushes on the girl playing Romeo. It's like an all-girls school. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a thing that's like, I mean, it's a girls' school, so it's just playing around, but Mitsuko has a very deep, serious crush Perhaps she's in love with the girl who played Romeo. And she's a bit jealous of Tycho, who she catches kind of like in the act with Romeo. And later that day, Romeo dies. He's hit by a car. Is has an accident and is killed. Um, but... They're all very depressed about this. They were a very close group. The the drama club the that drama was putting club. on the play. Sorry, yes. And they decide to die together. We'll play a game that will likely result in their death. Yes. But they, these two girls survive. And they're here now. Yes. Um, I kind of feel like it's important to go into what they were doing they they stole some basically uh some chemicals from their science lab that was going to make them uh fall asleep mm-hmm. and they stood on the ledge of a building um which all the girls except for me uh mitsuko they fall off the building three of the girls land on the ground and die and tetsuko lands on a car uh permanently damaging her leg but surviving mm-hmm so that's kind of explains the weird tumultuous relationship between the two, mm-hmm. um, and that's also pretty much the entirety of that backstory. So after the altercation where Mitoko uh, says she's not going to sleep with Shin, um, she gets a phone call from Joe Murata, who says, "Hey, uh, you loaned me fifty yen back when we were in high school." For quick reference, fifty yen would be like five cents. Right. And uh, U.S. dollar. Um, or I think even less than, like, half a penny. It's like as, it's about as low as yen goes. It's nothing, basically. Um, and I want to give that back to you because it meant a lot that you loaned that to me. And she's somewhat reluctant at first, but then she says, fine, you can give it back to me if it means that much to you. 
she meets Joe and kind of falls in love with him. Uh, he's a very charismatic, dressed in a white suit, and is... Uh, Comes up in a red sports car. Yeah. He's very clearly a swindler or a con artist. Um, I mean, from, from the get-go, you can kind of see that. But he's almost kind of playing into her, like, fantasies a little bit. Like, they're swinging together in the park. It's very sweet. Like, he has, he's on her pace a little bit. The film crew uh, sees this happen, um, and then they decide to make a documentary about this, uh, where they decide that they're going to have Joe's character be a serial killer. Who uh, There's a serial killer out in Japan right now in this universe um, and who is killing people in the woods. And so they're like, what if Joe was that guy? So we'll mm-hmm. make a movie about that. See, the thing is, it had started off just they got that cute footage of Mitsuko and Joe in the park. When they showed Taiko, she says, I know that guy. Mm-hmm. I slept with him. He swindled my sister. And that's where they're kind of like, ooh, what if we like dig into this like shady, shifty character and make him the serial killer? Yes. It's also revealed that uh, Taiko had uh, slept with Joe as well and been kind of a lover of Joe. Right. They'd been lovers. And so they also decide to use her in this to kind of, like, evoke more out of Joe. Yes. The real person. And to keep uh, Mitsuko safe. Right. uh, To try to break them apart. Um, And what proceeds to follow is kind of just the train wreck of Joe Morata being the most charismatic and persuasive person on the planet. He Mm. uh, eventually... Gets everybody on his side, the whole film crew, um, and is very, very abusive of both Taiko and Mitsoko, uh, burning cigarettes on their bodies, uh, electrocuting them, and basically making them, manipulating them to believe that they're, they deserve this punishment and want this punishment. Mm-hmm. Get the film crew under his wings to kind of, he says, I'm going to fund the movie. I think that's a great idea, you know, but he's broke. He's goes. He's gone bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie can't even really progress. Um, the one guy whose name we can't remember. Is, <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, he leaves mm-hmm. uh, finally, and Jay, the director, uh, is really lo- loose on his feet. He's not able to keep up. Meanwhile, um, Mitsuko is, I mean, one hundred percent obsessed with Joe. Uh, so they go to... She'll do whatever he says. Whatever he says. Any single thing. I mean, I, I think it's important to point out that Tycho, pretty much this whole time, is very on edge about Joe. She understands that he's dangerous and a con man, and so she's kind of keeping to the edges. But she can't escape. Right. Um, they go to an abandoned house and uh, to shoot the movie, where the scene is they're going to kill Jay... And then Mitsuko actually kills Jay. She strangles him to death. Yes. So Taiko almost runs away at this point. She has the camera with the footage evidence. But Sheen, who is quickly becoming kind of like vice president, if you will, of this operation, um, catches her, brings her back. Joe orders the three of them, because it's just the three of them now, to basically dispose of Jay's body in a very cruel, kind of gross way. Like, 
to make sure it's undiscoverable. Yeah, well, they chop up the body. I mean, <laughs> it's disgust. No, no, I mean they just they chop up the body and make it. I mean, almost untraceable. It's. I mean, mm-hmm. I. We don't have to get into how logical it would be that it would be untraceable, but. But uh, one important part of this is that they um, they crush the bones and put it into I think it was like onigiri or something. They cookie tins. And, yeah, they they roll them up in little balls and put them in cookie tins to take out on the lake and basically feed to the fishes, mm-hmm. so that that's all destroyed. At which point Tycho tries again, like this time really tries to escape. But, but she is stopped and killed. Yes. Um, and it's kind of made to believe... At that time, you don't really know who kills her. Um, it's... Uh, you kind of... Honestly, the way the movie made it look to me, uh, I thought the actual serial killer killed them. Whoever is... The, the serial killer in the background of this movie is the one who shot her. Right. Because up to this point, we really can't be sure who the real serial killer is. Yeah. Because it's kind of made to believe that it's Joe... So now um, it's just uh, Shin, Mitsuko, and Joe. And they uh, go back to Mitsuko's parents. And uh, Joe tortures her parents and gets them on all... Now the her parents are now on, uh, on Joe's side. Her parents are extremely strict, by the way. Uh, he, either her father basically beats her. Uh, for thinking about dating somebody without his approval. Mm. But, and her mother is very strict about who she dates as well because she wants her, as the oldest daughter, to be good for their family name. They're all about appearances. Yes. Um, Mitsuko's sister gets involved as well, um, and she is uh, much... She's younger than Mitsuko, um, and then they all dress up as like punk rockers. I'm trying to like rap. We gotta get yeah. to the end of this movie. The thing is, it's like a drug induced fever dream at that point, Which where we- Joe's sleeping with everyone. Everyone's getting like masochistically tortured. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, you find out Mitsuko is pregnant, but she loses the baby because she's electrocuted so severely. And she has to go to the hospital after attempting to kill herself again. Yes. Um, at which point, now it's just the four, uh, because Mitsuko's parents kill themselves. Well, her father kills himself, and then her mother is not actually dead, and then she has to kill her mother. Yeah, the younger daughter ends up finishing off her mother, who she thought was dead. Yes. And disposing of her parents' bodies. Yes. So, then Mitsuko, her sister, Shin, and Joe go to the woods... And um, in the woods, it's revealed that um, Shin is actually the serial killer that's been around in the background this whole time, not Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mitsuko uh, wanted this from the beginning. She hated everybody. and She basically suspected that Shin was the serial killer, and that's why she like let everything play because she wanted Tycho to die as revenge as well as her family because she hated them as well as yeah yeah I almost said her sister but that's also her family which her sister is still there with her at this point in the woods both the sisters are shot and killed and then Joe runs away and uh, so does Shin 
Yeah, Shin can't quite get Joe, but he can't leave the bodies there either with, you know, he kind of cleans up the evidence and then leaves. And that's kind of where it ends. I mean, the Shin... They're, they're haunted a bit by the dead people, right? Like, Romeo kind of... Shows up and picks up Joe and tells him to go to hell? Yeah. And then Shin thinks she, he sees somebody in the woods and runs after them in the woods? Which I think that was also Romeo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Some Somebody in a schoolgirl outfit. This movie was very, very confusing and hard to follow. Um, the The actions of the characters seemed very nonsensical. And uh, kind of the first place I want to start with talking about it uh, afterwards is um, I knew that there was a series based on this. I did not know that the series was just an extended version of this movie. There's a seven-part series on Netflix, mm. um, which after watching the almost two-hour-long movie, uh, neither of us particularly wanted to watch the seven-part series. Yeah, I'm told it, it was... Ma- it was a bit emotionally draining, this movie was. I'm told it makes more sense um, watching the seven part. It fleshes out a lot of things. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't want to. Uh, so, you know, if you go further and, and, and possibly want to watch the full thing, I don't think I can actually recommend it just from a personal preference. What did you think of this movie? You know, now that I've sat with it for a while, I thought it was really good and interesting. I thought the acting was amazing. I, I'm not... a I'm very unreliable as a judge for that. I don't I mean I'm no professional, but yeah, I, mean, I was very into the movie. I um perhaps to the detriment because it was so taxing. I think you're a fine judge of acting. I don't see that there's any reason to to put a asterisk on your your opinion there for it. I mean it Well, thank I, you. <laughs> um it's hard for me a lot of the times I'm still getting used to seeing acting um in, uh, in in Japanese acting, I mean, it's different than than the United States in that. I mean, we just inflect things differently. And the more movies that I watch from Japan, I'm getting a more like this equals this mm. kind of sensation and feeling. And so, um, I also thought it was good. I mean, it was it was in a lot of ways over the top and and. Um, uh, but uh, purposefully so it was mm-hmm. um extreme and exploitative um in its violence and sex and just so much of it right and this is like from the start of the movie i think they kind of cue you into that because when we meet taiko for one throughout the movie she has this like short kind of extreme like blue blue hair mm-hmm and she's wearing like super revealing kind of like punk clothing. So a leather bra and um a leather skirt. Yeah, like super short mini skirt and mm-hmm. she's um one thing we didn't talk about that I think is important is before their game on the top of the roof, the drama club, she had promised herself that if she lived, she would become Promiscuous. She mm-hmm. would live it up to the fullest and sleep with everyone and do whatever. So that's why she is the way she is. But she's also extremely smart. And I, it's just a very interesting way to start the film with, like, this character who's who's kind of a representative of, like, all the things we're about to see. Like, sexual promiscuity and, like, 
a punk crazy kind of vibe at the same time she's the person who stands the farthest removed from it as it's happening it's very interesting and and i think that's kind of where i'm getting somewhat better i feel like it at at uh translating what something uh, is trying to say in japanese into how it relates to our culture just because I think a lot of Japanese films do really well in to show instead of tell. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, they almost kind of double down on it. Like, they make what, uh, in, in my experience, there hasn't been a lot of uh, implied things. It seems like it, 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 they have, there's a very well-crafted way of, this is what I'm trying to say, and if you're uncertain, I'm also going to say it. Mm. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting to me about this movie, uh, finding out afterwards, uh, is somewhat based on uh, a real-life serial killer in Japan, um, a man by the name of uh, Futoshi Matsunaga. Am I saying that name correctly? Futoshi Matsunaga. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, also known as uh, the Kitakuyashu serial murder incident. Um he was uh, convicted of six murders uh, and one manslaughter between 1996 and 1998. And uh, he was sentenced to death by hanging in Japan. And uh, his accomplice, uh, his name is, J- her name was uh, Joe, uh, oh no, sorry, it's because Joe, <laughs> uh, Dunko uh, Ogata. She huh. was sentenced to life in prison. I didn't know the accomplice was a she. Yes. Um, he... Is very much representative of Joe's character, uh, and he was a con artist. I mean, had several businesses that went bankrupt and just kind of lied and cheated his way through life. And uh, I kind of see him as like the Charles Manson of mm. uh, Japan. Um, hmm. Interestingly, though, I really I find a lot of appreciation, um, as I often do, for Japanese culture in that um, it's not widely discussed. It's not a very popular topic, so much so that news outlets, uh, a lot of the time, kind of refuse to cover the stories because they were so uh, brutal and awful. Uh, the Japanese Times reported it saying that there's never been a crime like this in history, in Japanese history. Um, and uh, because of that, artists have been the ones who have taken up the reins of storytelling, which is interesting to me that um, that's where the story is told. Hmm. Yeah. So, in a way, this is a a lot of the history of it, isn't it? I mean, it's fictionalized, obviously, and they've taken liberties with it. But it's interesting that this is one of the closest to the truth that we can get. Mm-hmm. I think if I mean, assuming that because didn't you say that the time the Japan Times or the news outlet deleted the story or erased it or something. I, 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 I had found several links uh, to the Japan Times, um, which I believe is the name of the, the outlet. Um, and even using like the Wayback Machine, the articles, I could not find them. Um, so, uh, which, if you don't know, the Wayback Machine is a way to view websites at certain periods of time in history. So that's whenever you, if, I just, I don't know if everybody's aware of this. But I, I mean, wasn't aware of it. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, you can you can view a website from a certain date. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, like, Google used to look way different or Facebook used to look way different. You can view a website 
if, in, if it was around in 2007, you can view it as if it was 2007. Hmm. Um, and even using that, I, I wasn't able to really locate these articles, so they have definitely been subsconded. I couldn't find uh, links much beyond the Wikipedia pages uh, hmm. of these stories, but uh, yeah, I think Charles Manson's probably the closest like United States draw to this guy. Hmm. Which even then... Uh, this is a personal thing, not due to any lack of coverage, but I don't know that much about Charles Manson, I feel like. <laughs> Ironically, I think I learned a lot about Charles Manson and, like, what he meant to America through art as well. Like, through... He was in Criminal Minds. Or not... I'm sorry. Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Mindhunter and then in, like, Hollywood... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes. Yeah. No, I, Charles Manson, to me, has been put up on a, a pedestal in my life. I mean, he is uh, very much in the same vein of, like, a deity in how I think our culture uh, viewed him. Yeah. Um, he was kind of like the embodiment of Satan, which that's its own kind of moral conundrum. <laughs> yeah. um, I just respect that I kind of feel like Japanese culture was like, let's like almost leaned into it. that like, no, that's, that is unworldly. That is not us. And yeah. Like not gonna, we don't want to put that on a pedestal. Yeah. yeah. Now that being said, we're not entrenched in Japanese culture. There might be the same as with us. Cause I mean, how many people do you know that are obsessed with serial killers or crime and in, in that way here, there may be that in, in Japanese culture as well. I just, I'm not aware of it. Right. Well, and I do think from what I've learned of Japanese culture, they they definitely um how do i put this like american news will cover anything almost indiscriminately and that's sometimes a good thing and sometimes not it's just i think a way that american news differs from a lot of cultures and japan has a history of um how like Censorship is the best way I can put it. Um, and especially up until World War II, like leading up to World War II, there was a lot of censorship going on um, for like pro nationalism, making sure that there were like criticisms were quelled. Um, there's a whole like you can track art, especially like literature. Um, through the 20th century in Japan and kind of, like, see when artists and art production, like, tapers when there's a lot of censorship going on. It's mm. definitely uh, different from America's, you know, like, Second Amendment... Not not Second Amendment, sorry. <laughs> First Amendment um, fanaticism of, like, we'll, we'll report everything, we'll say what we want, you can't censor us. Yeah. I feel like that's a good jumping off point to the next thing I kind of want to talk about, which is the director of this uh, film and series, uh, Sion so Sono. Mm. Um, he is a very, very, very prominent director in Japan and a very controversial director, um, which is not surprising watch, watching this film. Um, he, uh, in the last decade, has made dozens of films. He, he puts them out very, very frequently. Uh, I saw somewhere where he had talked about how he uh, viewed, you know, 
uh, when asked why he makes so many movies, he felt, well, musicians put 12 tracks on an album. I don't know why I can't make 12 movies in a year. Um, so he's very just productive in his work. Um, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, and very, very uh, provocative in his exploitation and, and the violence and sex. And uh, he had a quote uh, feeling as though uh, Japanese cinema uh, lacked poison. Uh, he, so he mm. wanted to kind of inject that into his work. Um, uh, his first uh, really big hit was a film in 2001 called Suicide Club, uh, that focused on the increasing suicide rates in Japan, um, which I, I have a feeling this is not the last time we're going to watch a film by this director because um, just of how intense his work is mm. uh, and, and prevalent in, in so much of Japan. It kind of blurs the line uh, between pink film and uh, more mainstream film of Japan. Hmm. Yeah. He has actually uh, made and starred in uh, pink films himself. Uh, there was one, like the one he made, <laughs> the, the title, um, it was just funny because <laughs> another thing that I, I think is funny sometimes in, I guess it's not really nice to say funny, I don't, but interesting to me in... Uh, Japanese films is sometimes the title is just very explicit of what it's what it is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah, his pink film in two thousand was uh, "Teachers of Sexual Play: Modeling Urns with the Female Body." Whoa. Um, <laughs> which he uh, also starred in. He was he wrote, directed, and was starring in a uh, more or less a pornographic film. It is. Uh, I, probably some of the most interesting stuff I found um, was for this film was about the director himself. Um, to kind of kick off, how did you feel about his um, portrayal of women in this movie? I know it's kind of a heavy question to kind of throw on you, but... Yeah, that's hard, because I think that was a big underlying issue in the movie, was how women are treated and how women self-actualize. Um like, it'd be a very interesting movie to pick apart from a feminist lens because these women are horribly mistreated. You get a whole, like, it runs the gamut of, like, relationship types and um, the way these women respond to abuse. Um, we watch women abuse men and men abuse women, but it's usually uh, from a man's doing, which is interesting. Like... When the women in the movie participate in the torture, which is portrayed as masochism, but clearly goes further into abuse. Um, I should say sadomasochism, right? More sadistic than masochistic, if we're going to be clear. Um, but it definitely goes over into abuse. And when the women participate, when they are the people doing the sadism... They are doing it at the behest of Joe, who's kind of the hegemonic man of the top of the food chain in this weird, like, cultish thing they have going on. So it definitely feels like, on the surface level, like, women are not portrayed well. Like, they're taken advantage of, they're abused, they're sexed, if you will, um... But at the same time, characters like Taiko are very strong and self-aware, and she does 
a lot of brave things throughout the movie, like protecting Mitsuko to the extent she possibly can, um, escaping, <laughs> almost, um, and then we're randomly given Mitsuko's her she she has that essay at the end where she reveals that she knew the whole time and this was all part of her plan and that's a lot of power they give to her at the very end to say that like she was masterminding this whole thing at least from her point of view which that's kind of what matters for a feminist point of view i think that Mm -hmm. that she was getting what she wanted out of this she manipulated a serial killer and a con artist so it's it's hard to say. And I think that's kind of where like my readings into his work led me as well, is that one of the things that's very interesting is a predominant number of his films center themselves around lead female characters actually working and, and having to pull themselves away from destructive relationships mm. um, and uh, showing the kind of dangerous nature that men can play on that. However, one thing that goes a step further is that um, Sion actively acknowledges that this representation is through the gaze of a male director. Um, in 2018, he actually um, directed a film called Anti-Porno, um, hmm. which it sounds very, very interesting. Yeah. But it is um, the plot, like the, the initial plot of it is, uh, this woman and her abusing um, her assistant in this kind of um, deco art style universe um, that's very bright and poppy color. And um, and then at a certain point in the film, um, it cuts and it turns out that that is a film being directed in the film, directed by a man and the assistant person, the person playing the assistant abuses the woman and the film Whoa. itself is a film in the background of a of a porn, a, a pink film or a pornography. It's weird to call it. In the background of a pornography. <laughs> but the film, the universe of the film is a film being made for the background of a porn. What? <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty... Um, wow. Yeah, and in that way that, that that film is supposed to be kind of... Sion's, uh, uh, Acknowledgement that uh, his storytelling is is, is uh, plagued with his own objectivity. I mean, it's right. He he he's he's frequently showing these strong female characters, uh, however, very much sexualizing them because he is a man and um, that's what he wants to see and portray. Hmm. That's super interesting. That it's very interesting to think of this super self-aware director, like, who's... It's interesting to me that he's being so aware of his own shortcomings that his perspective gives him to women, and, like, charging ahead anyways, Mm -hmm. and saying, like, yeah, I'll recognize that, but I'm still going to make what I'm making. Uh, Apparently, um, most of his films are, I mean fraught with controversy and, and being very um, challenging to watch. I mean, one of his most popular films outside, I mean, Suicide Club obviously is very, very challenging. Um, and yeah. uh, he also directed a film called Tag, which was one of the movies we considered watching back 
in October. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also still would like to watch. Um, one of his most popular ones is a movie called Love Exposure, um, which has to do with, uh, it's like a romantic story revolving around um, somebody who takes pictures up women's skirts. Like, uh, but I believe the main character is uh, is a female protagonist in that as well. So I, I think that it's a um, yeah. There's a lot of his work that I'm very just interested in terms of how it's played and how how that works for such a productive and popular director. Yeah. To get wow. uh, his own, not only his own Netflix movie, but his own Netflix series extended version of his movie. Yeah. Huh. Um, so what did, um, were there any, any ties back to any Western media that, that this film made you think of? Not particularly. Um, just off the top of my head, it kind of reminds me of, now I can't remember the movie, but the one about, it had, uh, hmm, <laughs> I'm going to need your help with this. Sure. The rock band, female led. Cherry Bomb. Yes. The Runaways. Mm -hmm. Just because of, like, the punk rock kind of feel as well as, like, the exploitation of women. Um, But that's really... It doesn't go deeper than that, I think. Uh, I don't have much to relate this movie to. What about you? A lot of it I I really kind of pulled back to um, movies like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, Mm -hmm or really any movie heavily focused on um, drugs. I mean, I think Requiem for a Dream. Mm. I think that Joe Mata's character was, um, he reminded me of a drug. He The way people acted around him, mm. how, you know, you, you at first you go, why are these people doing these things? And you go, oh, well, it's, well, it's drugs. Well, in this movie, it was, oh, well, it's Joe. So, of course, they're doing these things. Of course, they're listening to him and electrocuting their mom because it's Joe. You kind of get to right. that point where you go, well, yeah, they're going to be doing this. Um, and in that way, it was hard to watch afterwards. One of the first things I remember saying was like, who are we supposed to root for in that movie? Right. I didn't like any of the characters. And most of the time when I feel that way, it's after after drug-related movies. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you deal well. Because you're not really supposed to root for them because they're not themselves. They're, right. they're, they're yeah. addicts in that sense. Wow. That's... That's very deep. Thanks. <laughs> I worked really hard. No. Um, but as as most of the movies, the more research we do, I, I had a a bit of greater respect. I still have, I don't have an interest in watching the extended version. I felt like we should, but we discussed mm-hmm. it and I just, the time sink was not something we, maybe we'll circle back. I don't know. Yeah. That's something I think now, cause we watched it a week ago ish. Um, Basically, after some time away from it, I feel like I could, I would like to circle back and watch the series. But it's, um, it does rank among some of the more difficult, like, triggering films I've watched. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's not the worst, but, um, it's definitely triggering, but I also do, I, I feel like I could and would like to explore more of it and watch the series. Yeah. More than that, I, I would like to watch other films by the same director. Um, yeah, I'd be very intrigued. The um, Suicide Club sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And he, 
his movies also are, from what I can tell, fraught with the, um, they have infamous scenes in them, scenes that, which this, you know, The Forest of Love doesn't feel like an exception to that, where there's, there's many moments of, you know, watching people put hands into blenders and, and things that were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this or what have you. Apparently this movie was mild in that sense of, of some of the extreme stuff that his other films will partake in. Mm-hmm. Well, what were your parting thoughts? I mean, what where do you kind of um, fit this film into the rest of the movies we watched, the rest of Japanese movies you've seen, movies in general? Well, um, <laughs> it definitely, I think this is what kind of got me thinking about the censorship um, along with the news story, was it's it's a lot more graphic and wild than most Japanese cinema that I'm used to being, I think I've been exposed to a lot of like older Japanese cinema where it is kind of expected to be more tame. And I think, I mean, I think America went through the same thing, but to a lesser extent where like, as, as the years went by, it was kind of okay to show more sex and more blood and more violence. Um, I mean, cultures just shift, you know, (laughs) for and against that. But, uh, wow, I really went off on a tangent. I guess that is just to say it's a lot wilder than what I'm used to, but that seems to fit with what I have seen in newer Japanese films that I have watched. So, I don't know. What about you? Not to go too much onto that, but I tend to disagree only in that, I mean, Japanese has been, I mean, by American standards, their films and media have been much less censored than Western culture in terms of things like violence and sex. Um, I don't think, I think that this is mild, I think, Mm. comparative to things early 2000s all the way back to the 70s, 60s and 70s. This is relatively minor. Um, but that's just our different our, our different relationships and exposure to... I mean, I think about House. I mean, House was... It swam in blood. I mean, that was in the 70s. Yeah. Nearly drowned in a house filled with blood. I guess this just feels different to me, if that makes sense. Like, there's a very new age feel to it. To with the like psychological aspect, maybe I'm I'm not I can't quite put my finger on it. I almost blame Netflix more for anything than that because I I one thing I watched thought of while watching this is I thought that this looks like a Netflix movie, hmm. and I I've I've learned recently that there are like technical specifications to become a Netflix film, and I think that that, that doesn't mean that all Netflix movies look the same. Hmm. But I am when I look back at Netflix movies I've seen, I think we watched The Old Guard not too long ago, and like. You could put the old guard side by side to the forest of love, and while like mm-hmm. stylistically very, very different, but it's almost kind of like that there is a like handkerchief, a very thin tissue that's like, mm-hmm. and also it was made by Netflix, like right. cast over it, um, mm-hmm. and that's what I saw, and I feel like maybe that's kind of what you're seeing as well. Like yeah, I think about, I think you're right. Um, like the sex scenes in this, they weren't particularly graphic or sexy in in just terms of, I mean, I say sexy and I, I hope you understand. Well, yeah, so. they were like almost mechanical, like fact of life. 
If I, you know, I, they were I don't also know. They, they were like fact of life, but they were also kind of gross. And I think the gross aspect of them, and I say gross in that they were just they weren't they weren't sensationalized. They hmm. were they were kind of actualized of what two people would kind of look like having sex that didn't. I mean, I don't want to go too much into to that aspect of it, but it 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 was. It was gross, and I think in that sense that was intentional by the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, it was just done in a kind of a Netflix way. It's hard to describe. Yeah, it. I think how I would describe it reminds me a little bit of Black Mirror style, yeah. like this like post future or post modern, I should say. I'm not even sure I'm using that right, but this like detachment. I guess is the word. Yeah. It's, it's almost, and this is probably too much of a topic to wrap up this podcast with, but it's almost as though like explicit sex has gone from kind of a unnatural, unnaturally like sexy, beautiful thing that Hollywood made it like Mm -hmm. where it was like, you know, like, wow, that's not what sex is, you know? Yeah. Like over the top steamy. And then Netflix kind of, like, darkened it, and it, it, it doesn't seem as though... Like, I think about, like, HBO shows, you know? Like, I mean, I, we haven't watched a ton of Game of Thrones. You haven't watched a ton of HBO shows, have you, I guess, really? Not really, but I know the reputation they get. Well, there's, like, a sex scene in every episode. Right. And they're usually, like, soft core porn level of, like, cheesy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like Netflix has the sex scene of every episode, but it's, like... Not that. For better or worse, I don't really know how to take it. It's just, like, more real, but then just, like, intentionally gross. Yeah, I want to say even gross because it's unromantic. Kind of, yeah. Because it's, it's, I mean, it's not the same thing, but it makes me think of, like, old Hollywood where they literally put gauze over the scene to make it, like, fluffy and romantic and, like dreamy, a little blurry, you but, know? But they didn't now. But they don't now, right. It's, like, more real and less romance. And I almost feel like, based on what I know of this director, I feel like he would have wanted to do more, like, if it was going to be explicit, more just real and, and lighthearted and fun. Like, mm-hmm. if we're going to be seeing these, I don't know. I don't. I think that's too big of a topic to tackle here, but I kind of yes. just see what you're saying in that. Uh, what did I think of the movie? Thank you for asking. Um... <laughs> I liked it. I, I, I my, my biggest frustration, and maybe that's why I went off. I went after Netflix. Going after you, Netflix. <laughs> um, I was upset to find out that this was a seven part series. Afterwards, mm. I, I, I've never seen the point of abridged anything, um, and so, I, I mean, I guess I see the point. I just, I, I am frustrated that I spent two hours to find out that there was so much more of this, of story that was condensed for the reason of, well, not everybody's going to want to watch it. Like, and that's partly my bad. I should have done more research on it, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like getting the full story. And, and there was so much of this that didn't make sense that probably would, if we had gotten the full story. Yeah. I do feel like given the choice, I, I would rather probably watch the whole series. Like if I could only watch one or the other. Yeah. So, 
I mean, it is what it is. Uh, on the other hand, I'm kind of glad it was over in less than three hours. <laughs> right. But. Um, yes. Uh, so do you have a, do you have a lesson for us this week? Yes. So there was a running undertone of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And so our phrase this week, we're going to learn how to say, where's Romeo? Or, you know, basically the the Romeo. translation of, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you say, Romeo wa doko desu ka? Romeo wa doko desu ka? Hi. It's fairly straightforward. Romeo wa doko desu ka? Yeah. So doko's where... So, where's Romeo? Romeo wa doko desu ka? That's the easiest one yet. Yeah. This kind of brings up an interesting point of Japanese that's just a cultural difference from America, so I kind of want to dig into it a little bit, is that in Japanese, there's really not an emphasis on, like, second person. Like, you don't tend to say me or you or he or she, and if you are referring to somebody specifically, you tend to say their name. So the literal translation is, where is Romeo? You wouldn't really get, where are you, Romeo? Because you and Romeo is the same thing. It's Romeo. Hmm. So if I'm talking to you and we're the only two people, I'm not going to say, hey, Brandon, probably. And I'm also not going to say me. It's going to be a context thing where if I ask a question... We can assume I'm asking you Hmm. about you. But if I'm making a statement, we can assume I'm talking about me because I don't know you. That's a question I'm going to ask. So it's it's interesting that little difference. So you wouldn't say, where are you, Romeo? You would say, where is Romeo? So just thought I'd do that fun little aside. Um, So if you listen to last month's episode... Um, you'll be aware of the fact that the reason we kind of fell into this movie is we were uh, not as prepared as we should have been and didn't have a movie lined up for the following month, which we apologize for, especially if you watch this movie and we're not a fan of it, uh, which would be understandable. It's not for everybody. Uh, so to kind of avoid that and, and, and also just to be better podcasters ourselves, uh, we went ahead and lined up uh, the entirety of 2021. Uh, so now, moving forward, all the movies we're going to be watching each month uh, will be listed on our social media, and we'll also, uh, I don't know if we have already put that out or if we'll put that out after, after this episode, but um, now we will know what we're going to be watching. So you can uh, prepare in advance or tune in when you want to tune in, and uh, this uh, Japanese movie book club-style podcast that we're doing will be a little bit easier to tune into, hopefully. Yeah. But to get us started, uh, what are we watching for February? Yes. Um, so, uh, again, for January, we watch The Forest of Love. Uh, next month, uh, February's movie is Your Name. Uh, it's an animated film that was uh, widely recommended uh, on the forums uh, that I've dived through in articles of, of Japanese movies. And uh, it is a, a, a love story, so that would fit with our the... the Valentine's Day month um, of February. And then uh, I thought I'd go ahead and run us through the rest of the 2021 schedule. Yeah, that sounds great.
And then just for your future reference, um, you don't have to remember this or write it down. We'll have it on our social media. Yes. And I, I, I think we'll probably in most episodes kind of running through what we have for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for March, we're going to be watching In This Corner of the World. In April, we're going to be watching Departures. In May, we're going to be watching Tampopo. In June, we're going to be watching Dragnet Girl. July's film is Fireworks. August, we'll watch 37 Seconds. September is The Petrified Forest. October is Ringu. November is Ghost in the Shell. And then we'll wrap up 2021 in December with Kamikaze Girls. That's a great lineup. I hope you all are excited. I think this is also good that um, people can kind of prepare. Um, I think, like you were kind of saying, this was a big ask to watch and maybe not uh, suitable for all audiences this month. But this way you can kind of look ahead and say, um, you know, what what suits you and what you want to tune into. And we'd love to hear your opinions. So if we're coming up on a movie that you watched or you're very interested in, definitely reach out to us. Um, we're at Okie Okie Show. That's O-K-I, O-K-I-E. S-H-O-W on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also email us at okieokieshow at gmail.com. And again, that's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. I think that does it for this month. Uh, we hope you all have a wonderful start to your 2021. And uh, we will see you on February 15th for your name. Right. Raigetsu matane. Matane. Hey, it's Donna, and this week we are starting the ending section with a listener submission. This listener wrote in regarding the topic of suicide and its prevalence in Japanese movies, even just in those we've watched so far for the Okie show but also in some literature that they've read, like Haruki Murakami's Norwegian Wood. They said, My Chinese friend in my book club said Japan has the highest suicide rate in the world. She attributes it to depression resulting in a clash between Eastern and Western traditions, which is present in the Forest of Love. The play the girls were planning to do was Romeo and Juliet, a very Western play. One thing I've speculated reading Murakami is that suicide doesn't carry the same level of stigma in Japan as it does here." They also mention kamikaze pilots in World War II serving as an example of suicide as a heroic act rather than a stigmatized one. And on this note, I would like to add a book recommendation to anyone who's interested in the topic of suicide in Japanese and American cultures. A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. It's one of the best books I've read to date, and it's shaped my current views and understanding of Japanese views on suicide, as well as American ones, and it addresses how kamikaze pilots and the recent wave of suicides in Japan fits into the broader picture of Japanese culture. Thank you so much for that great submission, and if anyone listening has something to add, let us know at 
O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. That's Okie Show on Twitter, Insta, or Gmail. And as for the fact check, I struggled with, uh, <laughs> with the director's name because of the way it was written in Ramaji. Uh, but I did some digging to find this out. The director's name is pronounced Shion Sono with Shion being the on readings of the kanji for child, she, and warm, on. And the family name, Sono, is written with the kanji for garden. So, there you go. And in 2015 alone, Shion Sono had six movies and a TV miniseries released with his name billed as director. His film, Anti-Porn, was released in 2016, not 2018. Also, I messed up conversions again but 50 yen is roughly 50 cents in US. And Brandon said, almost two hour movie. The full movie is two and a half hours. So get ready. And some clarity and extra information regarding the real life person who inspired the film, Futoshi Matsunaga. The murders are called the Kitakyushu serial murder incident and his accomplice, Junko Ogata, was one of his mistresses and former classmate at his high school, although she didn't know him well because he transferred high schools after it was discovered he was having relations with a junior high school girl. Matsunaga had a futon business in which he apparently shocked and psychologically manipulated his employees. And according to Ogata's Wikipedia page, she was originally a gentle person, but changed once she started dating with uh, Matsunaga. Quote, Matsunaga and Ogata killed at least seven people between 1996 and 1998. Their victims included her parents. So it's fair to say that Joe Murata represents Matsunaga and Mitsuko represents Ogata. Also, I accidentally referred to the Second Amendment, which in the U.S. is largely known as the right to bear arms, but I corrected myself to the First Amendment. According to WhiteHouse.gov, quote, it protects freedom of speech, the press, assembly, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, unquote. Also, since recording this episode, we switched two of the upcoming movies, so if you want to get the official schedule, check out our social media at Okioki Show. Again, that's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. Next month, February, is still Your Name. That's an anime that you can find. We'll be posting some links later on. And we look forward to talking to you about it. If you have something to add, as always, please let us know. You can email us at okiokishow at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter or Instagram at okiokishow. Thanks for listening. Daigetsu mare, kiyotsukete.